Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ocean View Podcast. No matter where you're at in our country or around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now sit back and enjoy this week's message. You might recognize him if you saw him, but you certainly wouldn't recognize his name. Asclepios, the Greek word for serpent, the Greek god of medicine who had come to be associated with healing, the guy whose staff a serpent slithered up. And people would come from miles and miles around. Celebrities and politicians, famous people would pay exorbitant amount of money to drink a potion, a sedative. It would make them fall asleep and then they'd go into this vaulted room and as they lied down, they would pray that one of the snakes that were filled in the room would crawl across them and bring them healing. This is the kind of environment that Pergamum was. And in this city, a group of Christians lived. A church started there. And to this church, Jesus has the Apostle John write a letter. He goes, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain truthful to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Will you pray with me? Father, we beg you, I beg you, that in these next several minutes, Lord, that you would take my mouth, that you would speak whatever you'd like through it, that, Father, you would take our hearts and you would soften them, that you would do what the scripture says, give us ears to hear your voice above mine. We love you, Jesus. In your name we ask this, amen. I have a uh, confession to make. And I don't want you to judge me, but I've always been one of those people that when it comes to Christmas versus Easter, I like Easter better. I've never been a real big fan of Christmas. I mean, don't get me wrong, I like what it represents, but around Christmas time, it's just, everything's cold and dying and like bleak and bland. And then around Easter time, everything is bright and coming back to life and we celebrate new life. And I've, I've always liked Easter more. Until this year. Now I felt like the scales were starting to balance a little bit on account of a couple of things I'm about to tell you. The first of which I'm going to ask you before I tell this story, I just got to put this out there. I need to remind you that I am not a monster. 
That's going to be really important in a minute. So I am not a monster. This past Easter, it was just a few weeks ago. You know how everybody gets those pictures of their families at church, these beautiful pictures that look so effortless for you guys to get your families to pose a certain way? My wife and I have four kids that are all under six years old, right? And getting all of us together in a picture that everyone is proud of is a little bit like trying to capture Bigfoot on film. It's just, it's so rare. Like, it's so unusual. And we tried so hard this year. Like, I was really being a bit willful and uh this is the closest we came we got this picture here i don't know how much you can see of this picture but this is me looking down on my four-year-old eli who had just decided he was not taking a picture that morning like i said e i really need a picture for easter and he was like oh no thank you it's like, no, buddy, like, I, I just want one of those nice family pictures. And he was like, oh, I'm not going to participate, you know. And he started to have this little meltdown. And while he's having the meltdown, Anna Kate, my two-year-old, decided that she would start marching through the preschool, swinging her arms. Just, you know, so she's off doing her own thing. I never understood, by the way, the expression herding cats before until trying to get my family to take a picture. Anna Kate swinging her arms through the preschool. Eli's having a little meltdown. And then Benjamin, my, fi- my six-year-old, who surprisingly and mysteriously is wearing sunglasses. I didn't even notice that until the first service this morning. I was like, is he wearing sunglasses? So strange. He brought with him a stuffed bunny rabbit that he thought he should see how high he could throw into the air. Like that was a good use of his time while Anna Kate's swinging her arms and Eli, or, uh, Eli's having the meltdown. So Benjamin starts throwing the bunny up into the air, which probably would have been fine, except until it landed on top of our infant daughter, who had been sleeping. And so to the best of her knowledge, she's sleeping one second, she opens her eyes, and an animal is lunging at her from the ceiling. The whole thing fell apart. We couldn't get a picture. But I was determined. I was like, I need a picture on Easter. Everybody has pictures on Easter. So I took Eli aside. I took him into one of these hallways and I got down on one knee in that daddy fuss pose. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. And I had my finger in his face. You know, I was like, I'm going to get a You know, so what I meant to say, and this is the part where don't, don't judge me. I'm not a monster. My brain sometimes breaks down on me. What I meant to say was if you're not careful, you're going to ruin Easter. What I did say was you ruined Easter. He's four. His eyes got like saucers, and he began looking around. He knows the Easter story. He knows about Jesus' death on the cross and the empty tomb. He sees the 2,000 visitors in our church and Easter lilies everywhere and decorations and candy. And in his four-year-old mind, he's like, oh, no, I ruined Easter? My wife who until this moment I didn't realize was standing beside me, goes, Tom? I'm Tommy. 
When I'm in severe trouble, I'm Thomas. Those gears in between first and fifth, I'm Tom. I'm on thin ice when I'm called Tom. And the way her voice went up on the end, like she's asking a question, indicated that not only was I on thin ice, but I could back out. I could get out, I could get off the thin ice if I corrected the situation, which I should have. But my brain breaks when there's too much stimulation and there's too much going on. And so I've got my finger in his face and I I said the first time, you ruined Easter. And Hannah goes, Tom? And what I should have said was, you're right. That's not what I meant. What I did say was, you ruined Easter. I said it a second time. I don't know what happens in the path between my brain and my mouth. And this is the part where it gets bad. Now Hannah says, Tom, now I'm on very thin ice. What I should have said was I'm wrong and I'm sorry. But my brain got confused again. And I'm stuck in this pose with Eli. And Hannah says, Tom, and I did this. I know. And that is why I'm lucky to be here this morning. I don't know what happened. My wife, she took Eli into the restroom and she was trying to console him because he was breaking down over the fact that he ruined Easter. And I was in my mind trying to figure out like where this whole thing derailed. It was like, what happened? I was so excited to see my family. And needless to say, like the scales went more towards Christmas. And this previous Christmas, I found out something really cool about Santa Claus. He's actually based on a guy named St. Nicholas. And St. Nicholas is a pretty awesome dude. Like St. Nicholas, his parents orphaned him at an early age and they left him this vast inheritance that when he became a Christian, he would use that money to give secret gifts to kids. Like that's what he did as a believer. And he lived during the reign of a horrible emperor named Diocletian and he persecuted the church and they persecuted St. Nicholas. They took hot irons to him and pliers to his skin and they couldn't get him to recount his faith to Jesus Christ. He was like, hey, you're not scaring me. You can do whatever you want. And they let him live, and pretty soon the persecution ended. But in that freedom, there swept in heresy or false teaching. All these false teachings were going through the church about all sorts of things. And they would have these councils where they would invite all these pastors from all over to kind of present these false teachings and decide if they were true or not. And St. Nicholas was invited to one of these councils. And at this council, there's a guy up there who's presenting this idea, this heresy, this false teaching that Jesus wasn't actually God. And to make it more understandable, he began singing a song that he wrote to try to help people understand how Jesus wasn't God. And according to eyewitness stories, St. Nicholas quietly stood up in the back And casually made his way up to this guy who's singing a song about Jesus not being God. And punched him in the mouth. Ho, ho, ho. 
St. Nicholas was a pastor of a church that wasn't very far from Pergamum, the one we're reading about today. Pergamum was called the, the, the temple keepers to Asia. I mean, all the major pagan religions in Asia would go through Pergamum. There were these temples set up everywhere. There was one that was elevated and actually looked like a throne room that jutted up out of the landscape and came to be known as Satan's throne. That's why when Jesus writes this letter, he goes, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. And then he talks about a guy named Antipas who stayed faithful to him in the midst of persecution. You see, peddling religion became sort of a source of revenue in this church. They would sell anybody anything. And when the Christians moved in, they didn't like it. So the pagan priests went on the offensive against the Christians. And they found this guy named Antipas. And according to history, they put him inside of a bronze bull. And there were these pipes that came out of the bull. And they lit a fire beneath the bull and roasted him to death. These pipes made it so that you could hear the noises that were going on on the inside. It made it look like the bull was coming to life. But more importantly, it served as a great deterrent to anybody to be faithful to Jesus Christ. If you hear somebody dying, it can turn you off. And according to history, he died praying for his church. This is an incredible church. They didn't turn their back on Jesus even after Antipas. He said, Jesus says, you didn't renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I mean, this is an incredible church. And soon after this, the persecution ended, but the false teaching I just told you about moved in. And this, this is what Jesus wants to put on the radar of this church. He goes, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. This is his letter to them. And he goes, these are the words we said last week, the way Jesus refers to himself in these letters indicates to us what it is he's writing to them about. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He's talking about the Bible. All throughout Scripture, we're told that the Bible is the way you separate truth from fiction. It is a double-edged sword. It cuts the truth of God's word. And and they were living in an environment that had all these different religions represented. And all of these different worldviews and viewpoints were being poured into Christianity. I mean, the name of the city itself, Pergamum, means mixed marriage. And Jesus wants to put on their radar. He's like, listen, Satan has learned that he can't intimidate you through killing you. So he's going to change his strategy. If you can't kill them, corrupt them. That's all you got to do. Just water it down, mix in some other viewpoints, and watch their faith become weak, anemic, and ineffective. That's what he says in this letter. He goes, I have a few things against you. There's some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam. If you want to read about this Old Testament figure, Balaam, turn in your Bible sometime to Numbers around chapter 25. He's this guy that represented Israel. Israel is God's chosen people, and Balaam is God's spokesman to Israel. And at this one point in the story, Israel was going to have to fight an enemy. And the king of the enemy contacts Balaam and goes, would you put a curse against God's people so they'll lose in battle? He's trying to manipulate God's spokesman to curse his own people. And he begins offering him money, and Balaam almost goes for it. 
He actually does kind of go for it, and God shuts it down in a very dramatic way. But then he contacts the king of the enemy. He's like, I can't do this for you. But here, you don't really need me to do it anyway. All you've got to do is get your ladies to seduce our men. Because if you get them to fall in love with you, you'll end up in these mixed marriages and they'll be compromised. Their faith, their, their dedication to Israel will be corrupted. And if you can't kill them, just corrupt them. It takes a little bit longer, but it's much more effective. And my fear for you this morning, in this room, is if you're not careful, this could be your experience of Christianity. Because we live in a culture where we don't go to God's word anymore for truth. We don't spend time in our, on our knees and reading, trying to figure out what God says about things. We rely on our feelings, and our feelings sway and shift, and we wonder why our faith also becomes weak and anemic and ineffective. It's like we've got this blurred view of what the Christian experience is supposed to be. We're good as a, as a church at saving people. But we're not good at discipling them and teaching them how to walk. I had a friend in seminary who said, it's sort of like there's a cliff and a lake and we're in the lake and we're pulling people out, saving their lives and throwing them back up on the cliff going, don't fall in the lake. And then they just fall right back in because nobody's telling them how to not fall in the lake. Because it's kind of like there's two sides to a coin. There's this way that you become a Christian And then on the other side of that is how you walk in light of the fact that you're a Christian. And we don't do a very good job with that side of the coin. And we end up with people whose experience of Christianity is so boring that they look back at their old life and go, man, I was better off. Maybe I could start incorporating some of my old life back into my new life. And we end up with this this mixed marriage between the two. We're not experiencing what God created it to be. You know, recently, my wife and I had the opportunity to take our kids to Disney. And some of you guys made that experience available for us. And I don't know if I've ever told you thank you. And a thank you from my mouth, a thank you card, like that doesn't even do it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. That's the coolest thing you guys could have ever given us. We were closing the chapter on being a family of five and becoming a family of six. And what a way to go out, you know. And so, so one night, like, we put the kids to bed, and after they went to sleep, we loaded the van, and we packed up. We did all this stuff. We stayed up, like, all night, you know, getting it ready. And then early the next morning, we threw everyone in the van. We didn't tell them where we were going. And uh, I don't know if you've ever made the drive to Florida, but it's long. I don't know if you've ever made the drive to Florida with three kids under five and a seven-and-a-half-month pregnant wife. But not very long into the drive, our daughter got a little car sick. And I don't mean to be gross, but she began to puke on herself. You know, it's like, ugh, you know. And then Eli is a sympathy puker, you know. So he's sitting beside her and like, he's, you know, he's like puking on himself too. And then Hannah is seven and a half months pregnant. So she's like, you know, like, you know, freaking out a little bit. And then Ben's is in the back going, I am not going to puke, but get me out of this car. And we were in Georgetown. I was like, I don't know if we're going to make it to Florida. But we did, and we got the van unloaded, and we put all the stuff in the little condo we were staying in. 
We still didn't tell the kids what we were doing. We just had some fun. We swam in a pool and played mini golf and told them that was the vacation. We put them to bed. Then early the next morning, me and Hannah got up again, like we're getting off the bench at halftime. You know, we're like high-fiving. Woo! We got the van ready before the kids got up because we were going to get to Disney first. They were going to experience Disney. Like we wanted to get everything out of it that we could. And I want you to imagine we go through Disney. We go into the big ears and the, the monorail system. Like we go through the monorail. We pay for the VIP parking. The monorail is basically this, this above-ground subway system that gets you into Disney. And we get in the gates and we get our ticket stamped. And we're like, woo You know, we get in and I want you to imagine that we go through the ticket counter and then we sit down. Yeah, we made it. Wasn't that awesome? The kids are like, what? The monorail. Isn't that fun? All the trouble we went through to get here to ride that, it was incredible. Let's just sit here and watch that. Could you imagine the conversations we would have had getting back here and being like, yeah, guys, thank you for that trip. What'd you ride? The monorail. Like, wait, the mo- what else? It's like, we watched the monorail. It's like, wait, you didn't do Aladdin's Magic Carpet? Like, you didn't do Toy Story? You didn't, take, you didn't go meet the characters? Like, no, we watched the monorail. Some of you guys are doing that spiritually. You come to Christianity, you come to Christ, you give your life to Him. You experience the Good Friday Jesus who died for your sins. But you stop there. You get your ticket stamped into the kingdom. Now you're in the kingdom and you've sat on the bench and you're looking back at your old life going, that was a lot more fun. This is the Christian experience? This is the Christian life? seems so boring. And to an audience who's struggling with this, Paul writes a letter called Romans. And in this letter, Paul says to this audience, he goes, I bet you guys think that you're Christians because Jesus died for you. There's crickets. So they're like, yeah? Is that a trick question? He goes, it's not a trick question. It's just, it's a dead Jesus. Like, what can you do with a dead Jesus? You can sing to a dead Jesus. You can thank God for a dead Jesus. But you can't get life out of a dead Jesus. He goes, at just the right time, Christ died for us. We're thankful for that. That's the Good Friday part of the Easter weekend message. He goes... So God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But since we have now been justified by his blood, turn the coin over, how much more? Four times in a very short piece of scripture, Paul goes, how much more? Circle, underline, highlight. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, there it is, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? He goes, you guys haven't turned the coin over. You're still singing to a dead Jesus. You've gotten your sins forgiven, but you're sitting at the gate to Disney. You're in the kingdom, but you're not exploring the park. Like you could be having so much more. Don't waste it. 
He says it this way. He goes, we all understand that we are broken, we are flawed, we're disgusting, we're gross. And that somehow, miraculously, God, in order to have a relationship with him, instead of letting sin keep us out of this relationship, he allowed his son to come down here and to pour his righteousness into us so that it washes our sins clean. And we have now been made pure and holy and right and we can have a relationship with the Father. He goes, that's what Easter is about. But it doesn't stop there. That's the Good Friday side of the coin. That's the Good Friday part of the message. He goes, Jesus took a step further by giving us the Holy Spirit, who is the game changer in this whole story. And we don't ever talk about him. He goes, Jesus took the Holy, the same Spirit that raised Jesus back from the dead, God sent to us to help us get through this life. And it's as if, I wanted to illustrate this, come here buddy. It's as if he puts this thing inside of us. That comes to life inside of us. And leads us through this life. So that we can experience the kingdom. So that we can experience what it feels like to be in a relationship with Jesus. He puts his spirit in us. And that spirit guides us through this life. I want you to write this down. Christ died for me, to take my life from me, to put his life in me so he could live through me. This is the prophesied Holy Spirit that Jesus told the disciples about in that upper room. When they all sat on the same side of the table so Leonardo could get his painting, he says, it's better for you if I go. And they're like, we don't get that, Jesus. We kind of like having you here. He goes, I know, but as long as I'm here physically, you get me with you. When I go, you get me living inside of you. But we don't ever talk about that. And so we sit at the, at the gates of Disney. We've got our ticket stamped. We're in the kingdom, but we're bored sitting on the bench. We're not experiencing the life of the Spirit inside of us. And in our boredom, we start looking back at our old selves, wondering how much of that self we can bring with us into this new marriage. How much sin can I get away with? How much, I seem to have a lot more fun back then. And we begin to incorporate all of that old stuff back into ourselves. And we end up with this version of Christianity where it's like, I, I think he's got the Holy Spirit in him. I, oh, there he is. And Jesus is saying to this church, you've got to keep the water clear. He goes, he goes, don't go back. Why would you go back to who you were before? Because you've been made new, you've been, your water has been cleansed, you've got to keep it clean. Don't start wondering how much you can get away with. Don't you see that that just colors your water so people can't even see the image of God in you anymore? Are you kidding me? Why would you mix marriages? Why would you start wondering how much of that old self can I get into this new self? You guys, on March 18th, 2006, I stood in a tuxedo that I had to rent in front of the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in a dress that she had to buy. I will never understand that. And she said, I do. And I was shocked. And before she could change her mind, I said, I do too. 
You guys, I don't normally like to talk bad about my wife in front of other people, but you would not believe the demands this woman made of me after we got married. I mean, she immediately insisted I stop seeing other people. I know. It's like, she's like, you and me forever. And I'm like, I know, I just said yes. And she's like, no, like forever. It's like, wait, hold on. There are 365 days in a year. If, if 300 of those nights I'm with you, that's pretty good, right? I'm like, oh, okay, let's say 360 of those nights I'm with you. Can I have five nights a year when I go on a date with another woman? That's doing pretty good. It makes us uncomfortable when it's a human analogy. But when it comes to God, we're kind of okay with it. God, I'm doing pretty good. I'm usually faithful. I'm usually committed. It's just a little sin. It's just a little of my old life. It's just gossip. It's just porn. It's just pot. Like, what does it really matter? And he goes, are you kidding me? You have tickets to Disney. Why would you go back to your old life? Like, why would you start trying to incorporate some of that into here? I want you to imagine sitting at the gates of Disney... That Walt Disney himself walks up to us and he goes, how do you guys like my park? And we're like, you know, the monorail was fun. I don't know if it was worth the drive and the puke, but it's, you know, it's a fun ride, I guess. You know, he's like, wait, what else have you done? No, we just did the monorail. It's like, are you kidding? There's a whole park here. Want to go on a tour? Could you imagine getting a tour of Disney World by Walt Disney himself? It's as if God does the same for us, only one better. He goes, I'm going to come live inside of you. I'm going to give you a tour of Disney World, living inside of you. And you know what he tells us to do to maintain that relationship? Just keep your tank clean. To ruthlessly control what you allow in. Yeah, I picture Santa Claus standing over my tank like a whack-a-mole. Like anything that's like in danger of clouding my water, he's there like, bang, no. False teaching, heresy. That's what Jesus is writing to this church. Ruthlessly control what you allow in here so that the Spirit of God can show you the kingdom. Ruthlessly control it. Keep your tank clean. Stop wondering how much you can get away with. If you're asking that question, you have no idea what I've done for you. And and this fight will go on forever. We're always going to be at battle with our own flesh and keeping our tanks clean. And that Easter Sunday, I am embarrassed to tell you that story. It's like you've been a Christian for how long? And you're still yelling at your kid and making your wife feel bad? Are you serious? At church on Easter. And the Bible is clear that this fight will never end. There's this Native American parable. I can't find the origins of it. But the gist of it, it says there's this young Cherokee warrior. And he is a skilled warrior. He's incredible. But he's also very impulsive and very aggressive and very arrogant. And so sometimes his actions put the whole tribe at risk. 
so the tribal elders call him in and they want to have a discussion with them. And one of them leans in and says, son, I know exactly what's going on with you. There is a condition that all human beings have. There are two wolves inside of you. One is aggressive and selfish and impulsive, and the other is peaceable and kind. And they will always be warring with each other as long as you live. And the young Indian, the young warrior says, which one wins? And the elder says, the one you feed. Don't allow anything in your tank that's not keeping your water clean. You've got, when you become a Christian, God puts the spirit that raised Jesus back to life inside of you. Feed that spirit. That comes through reading the word, through spending time in prayer, through Bible study, through staying connected to the vine. When Jesus is talking to the disciples in that other room, he goes, you have one job. Stay connected to me. That's it. Don't ask how much you can get away with. You're missing the point if you do that. Stay connected to me. And this will be a battle that will go on until the day you die. That Easter Sunday, man, I was just so embarrassed. I wandered these halls like, what what happened? And it was like these two voices were arguing with each other inside of my head about how right I was and how wrong I was. And that is normally the way that I experience it. You know those cartoons that have the demon and the angel and they're on both shoulders and they're talking to you? For me, it's not a demon and an angel. It's just two Tommies battling. I wanted to try to illustrate this for you today. I'm going to go for it. All right. If you like this illustration, I thought of it. If you don't like it, it was uh, Pastor Stephen's idea. This is normally my Christian experience. On one shoulder, you got old Tommy. And I have this little spat with my wife and my son, and I make them feel bad. And old Tommy is like, you got nothing to feel bad about. And I'm like, right on, old Tommy. He's like, she should have respected your parenting. She called you out in front of your kids. I mean, she should have listened to you. And I'm like, that's right, old Tommy. And then new Tommy leans in, and he goes, you need to ask forgiveness. Ouch. Old Tommy leans in, or sorry, old Tommy leans in and goes, you got nothing to be forgiven of. And new Tommy goes, doesn't matter. He who's been forgiven much has much to give. You need to ask forgiveness. And they both start leaning in and talking to me. You know how I tell the difference between them? This one looks like me. And he says stuff that Tommy would say. In his flesh. Because you guys, I started the service today by telling you I'm not a monster. The truth is the Bible says that I am a monster. There is this thing living inside of me who is a monster, who's ruled by sin, who is dark and is always going to lead me astray. But because of what Christ did on the cross and he put his spirit inside of me, I have access to a new Tommy who will also lean in and tell me the right things to do. Which one are you feeding? You know what the Bible says is true of these Tommies? 
This one says things that old Tommy would say. This one looks like me, but he says things I would never say. Go ask forgiveness. Go say you're sorry. And what's true in Scripture is that the one you listen to more is the one whose voice you hear more. The more you listen to the old you, the quieter and quieter this voice becomes. But the more you listen to the new you, the less and less you hear this voice. So which one are you feeding? This is the other side of the salvation coin. Am I saying that you don't get forgiveness without the other side of the coin? That this is somehow tied to the salvation experience and you don't get one without the other? No. Jesus is. He says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. He promises life. He wants you to experience the kingdom. Don't go back to the old you. Don't mix marriages. Don't wonder how much you can get away with it. Go explore the park. Feed the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you didn't leave us down here on our own to figure out our way through life. That you didn't abandon us, Lord, to our own flesh and our old sinfulness, our own selfishness, Father. But you gave us access to you through a spirit who lives inside of us, who connects us to you, just the way that I experienced on that Easter Sunday who leans in and tells us what to do. And the more we listen to that voice, the less we hear the other. Father, we will always be at battle with our old selves. And the warning to this church is a warning to all of us to starve the flesh, to feed the spirit, to not mix the two, Father, but to experience the life you've created for us, the Christian experience the way you intended for it to be, where we're ruled and governed and led by your Spirit. And Father, when we ask the question, how much can we get away with it, we have a total misunderstanding of what you intend for us and what you give us access to. And Father, if there's anyone in this room who's never turned that coin over, Father, we pray that today will be the day they do that. Where they accept not just the Good Friday Jesus, but also the risen Easter Sunday Jesus. He gives us access to you and your spirit and the life, the new life in Christ. We love you, God, and we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information about the ministries at Ocean View, or if you'd like to speak to someone directly, you can visit our website at www.ovbc.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.